Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 9, Summary and the New World Order. Last time, we left the Congo in Boma, where Stanley had boarded a steamer with his remaining expedition members. Most of them were heading for home in Zanzibar, but Stanley himself was continuing on to Europe and the West. The group had travelled to the West African Atlantic port city of Boma in a tortuous expedition from the East African coastal town of Bagamoyo, in today's Tanzania, across Lake Tanganyika to today's Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo border. They travelled north on the river Lualuba, assisted by Tipu Tip for a short while, until the group separated and Stanley's expedition followed the river west after Bioma Falls as the waters joined the river Congo. This took them through the Malabi Pool all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. This short description gives a huge disservice to the difficulties the men, women and children faced on this journey. For some time they didn't know which direction the river was taking them. The people they met on the river banks had an almost even chance of trading with them versus attacking them, and the enormous topographical difficulties of cataracts, waterfalls and rapids made this one of the most arduous journeys of exploration ever undertaken. We will never know if these were the first group of individuals to have made this journey, but they are certainly the first to have documented it, and the impact was global. On the west coast, they met the peoples of the Congo which had had a troubled relationship with the outside world since the 15th century. Famously, the Kingdom of Congo and other West African kingdoms such as the Ngongo of Queen Nzinga fame had been variously trading, fighting or allying with the Portuguese, Dutch or other European nations for hundreds of years. The Atlantic coast peoples had co-developed their relationships and position with the outside world for centuries and important families in the Kingdom of the Congo such as the Agua Rosada and the Kivuzi had established themselves as peoples of influence within the predominantly Portuguese-managed areas. In 1839, slavery had been officially abolished, and after military intervention, this was finally stopped just under 30 years later, in the 1860s. For the first time in a long time, what has been called a legitimate economy was emerging in the Western Congo. The lives of the people were changing. Peanuts and palm oil were cultivated and sold to coastal markets close to the ports for sale onto European markets. Ivory caravans were becoming increasingly common as prices and profits rose, representing an opportunity for hard but paid labour. The ivory was brought from the central plains by the tribes of the central regions to Malabi Pool, where new caravans would take the goods onwards. These caravans often numbered up to 500 people and traverse to the ports would go through the resurgent San Salvador, still the main hub between the river plateau and the ocean. But looking through the narrative, there was still much strife in these lands. Inland goods were often traded for guns and gunpowder to gain the upper hand in tribal disputes, although increasingly textiles were also exchanged. San Salvador is worthy of additional mention. The former capital of the Kingdom of the Congo, known previously as Mbanza Congo, had very much enjoyed a resurgence after its 17th century sacking in the civil war with the Soyo. It had regained much of its former glory and had once again evolved into a municipality of recognised Catholic gravitas and respectability. 
This placed the Congolese and peoples in much better position of negotiation in the years to come. This was particularly true in the areas that were to fall under Portuguese colonial rule. It was in San Salvador, again as the conduit between Malay Pool and the coast, that its resurgence as the centre of a new trade emerged. Just as with ivory, this trade was orientated towards a commodity which had previously been of limited value to the Congolese. This new commodity was, as you will have foreseen, rubber. The local elite, completely fluent in Portuguese and the local language, probably Kigongo, but not defined in my sources, were able to buy rubber from the relay caravans from the centre and employ people to carry these onto the ports. In this way, everyone was able to gain wealth for this short period. This stretched across local identities, with the Zombo peoples being the main long-distance traders, with other peoples supporting the collection and shipping of the rubber. The Portuguese traders did try to enter inland, but they were unable to navigate the complexities of tribal loyalties, and forays normally came to an end before they could source the rubber themselves. The people making the money from the rubber were totally aware of the age-old attempt to cut out the middleman. This was a crucial step in the co-importance of the powerful African families and their symbiotic existence with the Portuguese and other European merchants. This more optimistic macroeconomic view, however, does mask some of the underlying social problems in the West. Alcoholism was rife and many people would work for rum. Centuries of oppression had reduced the status of some chiefs to mere symbolic positions. These power vacuums allowed instability to some extent, but nevertheless I do want to highlight this specific and short-lived period between slavery and colonialism. It is an often overlooked window that provides a limited example of what direction the land and the peoples may have been able to develop in. For many I think slavery and colonialism are intertwined, but officially they did not coexist. Slavery was banned in the European colonies, and the creation of colonies was sometimes justified by their very attempts to stop this trade. We shall see later that in some areas, perhaps in the Congo above all, this distinction is disingenuous, but the narrative is true nonetheless. I'm certainly not trying to portray this short-lived situation as perfect, but this was a different age to today. We should be mindful of poverty and great class divisions throughout the globe in this period. Late 19th century London had huge slums, child labour and prostitution problems, but it largely managed to address these during the 20th century. I like to think there would have been nothing stopping San Salvador and the Western Congo developing the same way had it been allowed, but we shall see what, or whom, could have halted this trajectory in a short moment. The situation in the East and Central CRC, however, was much different. The lives of peoples living here had been completely disrupted by the Arab trading caravans, who arrived and settled in force only from the mid-19th century. These caravans were looking for export items that they could gather and sell, which fundamentally meant slaves and ivory. The Arabs were small in number, but their guns, in contrast to the muskets of the 15th century that the Portuguese arrived with, were much more potent. As they made inroads from the east, they were initially traders, but conflicts, sometimes driven by misunderstanding, sometimes driven by proud chiefs, and sometimes simply due to Arabic belligerence, did happen. These revealed the upper hand the Arabs had in a dramatic way. It was now harder for the indigenous peoples to fight against the taking of ivory and slaves by force, and the socio-economic structure of the network of kingdoms in this land broke down. 
In only 30 years, the Tabwe, the Bemba, the Eastern Lunda, and the peoples of the Arandi, who inhabited the land of Aluba, were all vassal states to the Arabs, who were informally led by Tipu Tip. Ivory was demanded, people were enslaved, and the Arabs travelled inexorably west into the Congo as the supply of ivory, reed elephant population, was exhausted. The peoples living in the east lived under the threat of being forcibly taken from their homes, either as porters to carry ivory back to the coast, or as ransom to be held in exchange for ivory. There were few avenues to escape this tsunami of change. In the face of this devastation, tribal rivalries somehow managed to fuel local animosities. Chiefs saw the Arabs and their weaponry as a way to give them an advantage over rival tribes. Centuries-old empires, kingdoms, manufacturing and international trade routes fell into ruin. In the middle of the country, and to the north and south of the river, people lived relatively unaffected by the outside world directly. The Portuguese had not ventured very far east from the Atlantic coast, and the Arabs hadn't yet travelled west past Bioma Falls. The western and eastern rapids still closed the gateway to the Central African Plateau and all the resources it held. But news of Stanley's journey changed all of that. The centuries-old blank spaces on the map could now be filled in. The world beyond the people living there now knew the geography of the River Congo. It originated, pretty much, from Lake Mwero in southeastern DRC, travelling north as the River Lualuba, until it turned sharply west at Bioma Falls and Kisangani. From there it travelled relatively gently to Malabi Pool, until its course narrowed and frothed through 400 kilometres of cataracts and canyons, all the way to Boma, on the Atlantic coast. The rest of the world now caught up with the indigenous knowledge. The River Congo and its tributaries represent a highway running throughout the middle of the African continent. For the next few episodes of Congo's history, I need to provide some context of the narrative. This is the history of the Congo and the people living there, but this podcast's mission is also to tell the history of the country. For the near future, many significant events in the embryonic DRC are driven by the outside world. As we progress through our journey, the sons, and to a much lesser extent the daughters, of the Congo will once again be in control, but that is about 80 years away. Until then, we will need to accommodate the history of the Congo with a heavy lean to some outside actors. I just want to acknowledge this. I've thought about it, but if we don't follow these events, we really won't show the Congo's history. That's not to say, of course, that the voice of the Congolese will be invisible. So, Stanley arrived back in London with stories of a land and people open to trade. A man of his time, he thought it noble to expand the European and American model of civilization. He had seen the modernization and development of the American West and the vulnerability and savagery in today's DRC, and he saw an opportunity and a duty to develop the land and peoples. It could also enrich the developers at the same time. In today's vernacular, this was a win-win. But in the 19th century, it was described thus. There are 43 million naked people beyond the gateway to Africa, and the cotton spinners of Manchester are waiting to clothe them. Birmingham's foundries are glowing with the red metal that shall presently be made into ironwork in every fashion and shape for them. And the ministers of Christ are zealous to bring them the poor benighted heathen, into the Christian fold. Industrialisation 
and a desire to do God's good work meant that European ambitions on the continent were becoming ever more loftier. India had provided the great example to be copied. Riches and wealth awaited those who dared to travel to trade and lay down infrastructure, whilst at the same time allowing God's word to spread. The economies of Africa and India, however, were very different. For trade-led co-development of any sort, the transaction between both parties involved in the exchange had to have value for both sides. Prior to the outside incursions, this trade was happening extensively. The factories of the Luba producing Virambi weave, the trade routes to Madagascar, and the flow of copper and minerals from Katanga to the east and west coasts enriched both sides of the trade. Currency was in place across Central Africa in the form of cowrie shells, and a social-economic environment stretching thousands of miles absolutely existed. But these were all wiped out in the new exchange mechanism. Arabs and Europeans weren't interested in locally produced goods. What they had wanted were the people and the ivory, and the sale of these had far-reaching and damaging consequences, as we have seen. But this was their path to wealth, and for some of the powers that existed, wealth was the priority. One of these powers was very minor indeed. It had formed only 50 years prior, in 1830, as a European buffer state created after rebellion with the Netherlands to its east. The major powers permitted its existence as a way to absorb the tensions between France and Germany. It didn't have a common language. Its population spoke Flemish and French, living in distinct eastern and western halves. There was even a small minority of native German speakers. We can put them off no longer. It is now time to introduce the Belgians. Young as Belgium was, it was keen to have the trappings of its neighbours, and a monarchy was first on the to-do list. The first king was Leopold I. He had been born into the ruling family of a small German duchy. King Leopold was able to capitalise on his popularity with the British royals, and initially he was offered the crown of Greece. He declined this offer, as Greece was not stable enough to offer a long-term hereditary position, which turned out to be true. But a kingship was still very much coveted. Belgium offered such an opportunity, and nestled between supportive larger powers, on the 21st of July, 1831, Leopold I accepted the crown as the first king of Belgium. He had a happy marriage, and in December 1865, Leopold I's wife, Louise of Orléans, gave birth to their son, Leopold II. Leopold II is recorded as having been most peculiar from childhood, and Queen Victoria... No, hang on a minute. Who cares about Leopold II? I don't, that's for sure. We'll see more about his actions later. But as a person, I'm just not going to waste mine and your time on him. So on with the story. Leopold II was keen to further increase the trappings of state for Belgium, but what he really wanted, and for a long time, was a colony. After failed attempts to purchase Fiji, the Philippines, and interests in South America, he found Stanley's report an irresistible opportunity, and launched a campaign to meet him to discuss how his interests could be pursued. After initial reluctance, he found Stanley open to discussion. Caught up in the developmental zeal of the time, Stanley had been looking for backers in what was to become his life's ambition. Above all, Stanley wanted to set up trading networks and enable trade all the way to Kisangani at the westward's bend of the River Congo, in the middle of Central Africa. Although Stanley identified himself as, 
and was accepted as an American. His preferred investor and developer was Britain, but this was an unstarter. Britain was suffering from a conflict around the strategically important Suez Canal, and troubles were brewing in South Africa. It didn't have the spare capital or the energy to invest in the Congo. Stanley was also suffering from political unfashionability. Societal consensus on reading his travel diaries was that he had treated his travelling companions harshly through excessive use of the whip. Tim Gill writes, viewed in comparison with other explorers, such as Burton, the Livingston-inspired Stanley didn't really warrant such specific vilification. From today's news and politics, I feel that facts have often had a limited effect on political consensus, but I am unsure of how much this applies to the past. For the record, I do not know the facts on this. Of course, any use of the whip appears grotesque to my delicate modern sensibilities, but I am writing this nearly 150 years later. But, caveat said, on with the history. Faced with British inertia and the handings of the Commentariat, he finally succumbed to the invitations of Leopold I and travelled to Belgium to meet him in Brussels in June 1878. Ostensibly, Leopold's and Stanley's goals were very much aligned. Leopold was positioning himself as a humanitarian, portraying himself as wanting to develop and improve the lives of the people living in the Congo region. To this aim, he set up the Committee for Studies of the Upper Congo, which was later named the International Association of the Congo, or IAC. Through this, Leopold was masking commercial ambitions. He knew he had to act fast, as other powers were openly trying to seize this land. He was aware of the increasingly transparent French ambitions at the northern bank of the Congo, where Brazzaville, the capital of the Republic of the Congo, now sits. Other Europeans had followed the maps drawn by Stanley, excited by the world that they now knew existed. First of all were the Protestant and Lutheran missionaries, but these were greeted only with scepticism. Trade opportunities were growing, and like people everywhere, the chiefs of the Congo wanted to advance their commercial prospects. As we have alluded to, labour, in the form of porterage and in the rubber factories, was exchanged for ivory, rubber, guns, textiles and alcohol. The missionaries were not traders though, and in the mould of Livingston they were hoping to spread their gospel. The chiefs couldn't quite understand why they were doing this. Here is how the chief of the Bakongo reacts when he met George Grenfell and Thomas Comer, the first white missionaries to travel upriver from the west. Ah, so they haven't come to buy ivory? Well then, what do they want? To teach us about God? About dying more likely. We already have enough of that. The deaths in my city go on and on. They must not come here. If we allow the Europeans in, that will be the end of us. It's bad enough that they are on the coast. The ivory traders already take far too many spirits away with the tusks. And they sell them. We are dying too quickly. It would have been better off if they had not come to cast a spell on me. Leopold II, of course, was not aware or caring of these local opinions. More than anything, and I literally think more than anything, as he had an unhappy marriage, Leopold II wanted to own these trade routes and, more ominously, the lands that they were conducted on. Five months after the Brussels meeting, in November 1878, Leopold II finally convinced Stanley to sign a five-year contract to work on his behalf. Through this framework, the IAC was renamed the African International Association, which funded Stanley's return to the Congo. The Committee for Studies of the Upper Congo with such noble aims was already obsolete. 
but a veneer of respectability still clung to the new organisation. This was formed, and I quote Leopold II here, with an essentially philanthropic and scientific point of view, and with the intention of extending civilization and finding new outlets for commerce and industry in the study and explorations of certain parts of the Congo. The main backers were Leopold himself and a Dutch company called Afrikaans Handels Bereniging, although notably the religious William McKinnon and the philanthropist Baroness Burdett Coutts were minority investors which gave the company moral standing. Baroness Burdett Coutts deserves particular mention as the co-founder of both the predecessors for the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children and the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, both highly esteemed charities today in her native United Kingdom. These two individuals were wealthy in their own right and their investment helped convince Stanley that the expedition had a noble cause. So in February 1879, some 14 months after leaving Zanzibar, Stanley once again set off for Africa. This time he had resources and a mission though, and he was determined to see it through. In particular, he was to build a road from Boma, the furthest upriver port from the Atlantic coast on the River Congo, all the way to Malebi Pool. This would open up the Congo River Basin and the lands and the peoples within. The isolation of the Central African Plateau was to end. Ominously though, even before arriving at the Congo River mouth, he received new orders. These were kept so secret so as to be only revealed to him in Gibraltar when he was safely on passage. Only a few years after its formation, the International Association of Africa was closed, and his new employer was now the aforementioned International Association of the Congo. Ominously, the noble founders of the previous organisation were gone. Leopold II was the main shareholder alongside the Belgian state. Stanley's mission was now unequivocally a land grab. He was instructed to create a confederation of republics in the Congo, although specifically there was to be, and I quote directly, no question of granting the slightest political power to the peoples living there. That would be absurd. The mission was morphing into something altogether different. Next time we shall see how Leopold's men, particularly Stanley, started the great land grab. We shall also see how Leopold managed to hold on to the Congo in light of increasing competition from the other European powers. I'm not so excited this time. In many ways this is a sad part of the story. But listen on and today's DRC will become a little clearer. So until then, safe travels and see you next time.